Welcome to The Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health, embodied spirituality, and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, and educator, and I'm your host. Shout out to the Association for Pre-Imperial Natal Psychology and Health. If you're interested in birth psychology and health, check them out. Today's show is brought to you by Somatic Psychotherapy Today. I'm pleased to have returning guest, Jan Winhall, author of Treating Trauma and Addiction with Felt Sense Polyvagal Model, A Bottom-Up Approach. Jan offers a new paradigm, a bottom-up approach that considers addiction as an adaptive attempt to regulate emotional states and trauma in contrast with a top-down medicalized method. She integrates the felt sense polyvagal model, draws from Porges' polyvagal theory, Genlin's felt sense, and Lewis's learning model of addiction. Welcome, Jan. Wow. Hi, Michael. It's great to be back. It's great to have you back and uh, loving your book. And I thought maybe we could start with your story, which is an amazing one. At the very beginning of the book, you talk about a women's group, which seemed to be the catalyst for having you question the biomedical model and head down a whole new path, which eventually led you to writing this book, Treating Trauma and Addiction with Felt Sense Polyvagal Model. Would that be a good place to start? Yeah, that's uh, pretty well where I always start because that's really um, what has has kind of driven me, motivated me in a really, I guess, very passionate way to um, to get the message out. I think that there are different ways of understanding and treating addiction, and I think in this field we tend to. Um, get kind of stuck, you know, in patterns or responses or ways of, of being able to look at something and particularly through a very traditional kind of medical model where addiction is a disease. And it just never resonated with me when I started, I was, you know, I don't know, 25, it's like over 40 years ago now. And I got a job um, at a a hospital. Um, I was working in the uh, psychiatry department, and they asked me to do this group for really young women who ha- were survivors of incest. And I mean, oh, I ended up with my own vicarious trauma, but I learned really everything that I continued to know and develop started here. And I guess, you know, I was always a rebel. I was a kid of the 60s anyway, so I I never really totally bought into that that traditional model. I was reading Thomas Az and the myth of mental illness, you know, and even back, you know, Gabor Mate and loved loved his work. And then um, I got I, I was in this experience and I started hunting around and I found these, you know, beautiful feminist therapists doing this work, Judy Herman, for example trauma and recovery. And I read that book and uh, others, Sandra Butler's work, one of the first books ever written on incest called The Conspiracy of Silence. And uh, it really helped me to be able to understand what was happening for these women in a very different way. So I listened, I just really listened with what I call non pathologizing ears. Yeah. freshly, like Gendlin taught us to do, the father of, of focusing in the felt sense. I found his work and I just listened to what they were telling me and I watched their bodies. And from that, I really um, learned that addictions 
are what uh, now Steve Porges calls state regulation strategies. And I didn't know any of that at the time. I didn't know it was connected really to how our autonomic nervous system works back then. But I could see in the body that there were these jolts that they would describe, the ways that that would help them to move from, you know, this very flight fight place in our nervous system into a real shutdown, what now we call the dorsal branch of the vagus, thanks to Steve Porges' work. So I could see this and they would describe it to me, that they would do these, these things that seemed bizarre in a regular everyday context, like cutting the body. But when they described how it helped them, because often it would lead them into a state of dissociating and numbing, or it could also activate them into a sympathetic kind of jolt and awakening if they were in too much of a dorsal state. And that's when I started to really appreciate that addictions aren't a disease. They, they, they actually originate, I believe, as ways of, of helping us to cope with really severe um, trauma responses, emotional and physical dysregulations in the body. And of course, they can result in some disease. Uh, we all know that. But I think the key really here for me is if you listen to the body, if you bring the body into the work that you're doing, which we don't do most of the time in our top-down ways of, of understanding stress, when we bring the body in and we're curious about it, we realize that these behaviors are actually adaptive in a context in which there's no other choice. That makes complete sense. And if you wouldn't mind, because you mentioned the autonomic nervous, autonomic nervous system, and it's really interesting because you said like a lot of what you're doing is through observation. You didn't have the theories and the models because they hadn't been developed yet to really mm -hmm. understand at the nervous system level what, what you were seeing. But we, we now do, and you do, and you teach it. Can you just briefly walk us through the autonomic nervous system as it relates to the various aspects of our re some people's responses, reactions, in this case, to a stressful situation or a series of stressful situations that's adaptive to them? Sure, yeah. So, you know, most of us know we, we our autonomic nervous system is the part of us that keeps us, it watches to keep us safe. And right now, for example, in the world, we're all dysregulated in that nervous system. You know, we're up in a kind of flight fight response where we feel adrenaline pumping in the body. We're scared or we're angry. We see a lot of rage and anger in my country right now. It's crazy. <laughs> People are so dysregulated. And, you know, usually Canada is a very kind of um, restrained culture, right? Not so at all right now. Um, so as we speak, my province has just declared a state of emergency because people, a, a small segment of, of people, but people that are able to really immobilize the city and the country um, are so full of rage and frustration about what's happening in, in the world. And when we step back, we can see that, we can understand our bodies don't feel safe. So they shift into this sympathetic response of flight fight. 
And then if that doesn't work, if we can't mobilize to either run away or fight, then the body shuts us down. And that's, that's what Steve Porges really named for us that we saw as therapists back then doing trauma work. We saw the numbing and we saw the flooding. But what Steve did in his work is he really named the unique features of that dorsal branch of the vagus that are dissociation. And so that's what happens when we can't run and we can't fight, we shut down. And what I saw, and, it, and actually Judith Herman really actually describes this in trauma and recovery, I guess, because she was medically trained too. She understood the autonomic nervous system. And she talked about these jolts to the body that people feel. And uh, she talked about how they were part of the autonomic nervous system, but we didn't have the language of the dorsal branch the way that Steve Porges has now incorporated into polyvagal theory. And so when you're in trauma states, right, you live up in that sense of either running or fighting or giving up and shutting down. Could you walk through one of the ladies in your group? Because you gave some examples of some of the behaviors they were doing that mm -hmm. back then, even today, would be pathologized. And you're pointing yeah. out that they're actually adaptive to the situations that they found themselves in. But could you walk through some of those behaviors and then use what you just walked through in terms of the autonomic nervous system and the very various aspects of it as, as models to explain what you saw them doing? Yeah, and here's a, a complex one because oftentimes these behaviors, they both uh, help you to deal with emotion dysregulation and they also often, especially when sexual abuse uh, or sexual um, addiction is involved, they also often tell the story of the abuse. So it's really quite fascinating. So let me, let me share. So here's an example of a young woman who's in the group, who is the victim, who is uh, of incest by a, a stepfather. Um, she describes um, engaging in all kinds of behaviors that I'm really alarmed by uh, in my youth and my lack of experience, but, but fascinated by, for example, cutting and also drinking like large quantities of, of alcohol. And then also really engaging in, in very dangerous sexual um, acting out behaviors. And I'm, I'm really puzzled by this, but as we sit and she shares what happens for her, we trace from this, she starts at this very sympathetic adrenaline pumping place. And cause she doesn't have any safety in her life. So she doesn't have the ability to settle and calm and be activated in that gorgeous, safe ventral part of the vagus nerve that is part of that polyvagal system in the body that keeps us safe. So here she is living in flight fight trying to avoid being assaulted. She numbs the body with large amounts of alcohol. And then she goes out and gets herself into really unsafe situations sexually and is often re-traumatized through sexual assault. And then we, I don't get this. And then we 
We continue on though. That's not the end of the story. So I watch her, I watch her body. I watch the others in the group. And what I see is that even as she's telling her story, they all start to get real sleepy. And by the time the story finishes, and I'm, I'm asking her, what happens after that? You know, she goes home and she sleeps and sleeps and numbs out and can hardly remember what happened the night before. And I look around the room and many of the, of the young women were very dissociated. You know, you can see this kind of scattered, vacant look in their eyes. So what I began to appreciate was that while there was this flooding response, then the body moves into um, a situation that actually releases endogenous opioids that were released at the site of the crime. So when she was first assaulted, the body releases these endogenous opioids that numb us and then create this state of dissociation so that we can survive horror. It's like shell shock. Yeah. Right. And what that did is it actually gave her some relief. The only relief that was available to her because the relief or the calm of safety was never available. And many people now live in situations that are, they're never safe. So the interesting piece in this is looking at, okay, we, we begin to understand the dissociation and the release of endogenous opioids. And studies were done around this. Bessel van der Kolk mm-hmm. did some studies with war veterans, which looked at uh, the release of endogenous opioids when guys were exposed to violent um, war scenes after coming back from, from war. Same kind of thing where they, they dropped into this dissociated place. So that starts to make sense. And then the other piece that's so fascinating is why do people choose the particular addictions that they choose, right? Why do they engage in behaviors that are self-harming and then often become addictive because they work so effectively to relieve pain? And what's fascinating there that, again, Judith Herman saw this, and I saw it in the group, is that, and I've seen it for 40 years in doing this work, is that particularly with sex abuse, people are drawn back to, it's like the scene that set up the body's pathway for in in excreting these uh, opioids, endogenous opioids. No wonder people get addicted to opioids, right? Um, and dissociation. And so there's a kind of neural pathway that gets formed there early on and a sexual arousal template. So what wires together, right? What fires together, wires together. So if you're sexually exposed or activated, stimulated, even though it's like in a very scary way, the body records that. And then you go back through that neural pathway, through those behaviors, because they bring you the only relief that is available to you. Do you get that? Yeah, yeah, I do. And that's why it's so important not to pathologize people, but see them as doing the best they can to adapt to a really horrible series or single situation. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, it's really pretty outrageous when you think that you end up pathologizing women or men too, people, people who are abused and then their bodies are actually designed to, to dissociate. That's how we're created. That's actually the gift in the body. That's the body's wisdom. The problem is that we then get stuck in those uh, traumatic patterns, those traumatic neural pathways in the body. And that's where therapy comes in. And that's where top down comes in that we need to be able to use our thinking brain to appreciate that the body does get stuck there and that we have to update our nervous system through what Steve calls these neural exercises, which can sound a little funny to us, but it's really just about things like meditation, focusing practice, psychotherapy, hanging out with our friends, feeling kinship together, even like a moment like this, where, you know, I feel a sense of connection with you, we're doing this important work. All of that builds this beautiful healing kind of pathway that shifts us out of those, those stuck places of trauma responses in the body. Yeah. And I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit more, but before we do, if you wouldn't mind, cause you've talked about, you know, the, sym- the sympathetic nervous system is activated fight or flight yeah. work. The dorsal is activated and you, and you um, shut down. Yeah. You talk about in both first, yeah. um, what effects it has on the prefrontal cortex, our thinking mind, you know, our human quote unquote mind. Well, let me say two things. So addictions occur in a blended state. So the body's able, the autonomic nervous system is able to blend and addictions occur in a blending often of sympathetic and dorsal. And they're seen as like, I call them like propellers that shift us from one state to another very effectively. So that's important to know that the nervous system also blends and that's where addiction lives in what I call I have this, I have two models that I created. One of them is a client model. You can download them on my website. We call it the six F's. Mm -hmm. So there's fight, fight. Then there's freeze, which is the addicted place of, you know, it's like you're going nowhere fast. You're stuck in a terrible rut, a terrible pattern. That's a blending of freaking out in sympathetic and also immobilization in dorsal. So in those states, the prefrontal cortex doesn't work well. It's, it's down in this, uh, what we call flock in the six Fs. That's the ventral branch of the vagus, the safe, grounded place where Steve talks about how this is the place of health and growth and restoration. And in that state of safety, we're thinking clearly, we get a full felt sense of an experience. Well, we're very integrated. You know, this is Dan Siegel's work uh, in terms of, you know, seeing integration as the healing spot, right? But in that place, uh, we think clearly and we are socially engaged. This is one of the other concepts in polyvagal theory. We thrive in connection. We co-regulate with each other's nervous systems to settle inside. And the, the really difficult thing about trauma responses in flight, fight, freeze, and then shutdown is that 
that thinking brain, the pre prefrontal cortex is really compromised. We don't think well, we all know this, right? If you get upset, you get scattered, you can't, you can't think well. Um, and also you don't heal well, the immune system is compromised. And in terms of the social engagement system, that part of the vagus nerve that um, when activated is, is we're, we're noticing and connecting with each other, particularly through face and sound. It's like when a mother would sing a lullaby or a father or a, to a baby, or we, you know, cuddle our kids or our cats and dogs or, um, and in that place, we really settle in the nervous system. But when we're not in that social engagement system, because we're in threat, um, we're also not mindful of our value system, of our, our moral kind of compass inside. And so that's also where it's really important to understand that addictions happen, people do really good people, do really sometimes very bad things in that state of addiction because they're not engaged and connected uh, in terms of that social engagement system because they don't feel safe. And so then you start to help your clients to understand, A, your responses, ad addictive responses are natural and adaptive in a very unsafe context. And B, the behaviors that come from that and the ways that you've hurt yourself and other people are also a response to that addictive state where you're not connected to empathy and compassion with yourself and the people around you. I could imagine that a client sitting in front of you and you're not pathologizing them, you're actually pointing to them the, the, the strength that they had to adapt to a, a really challenging situation. Um, that, that in and of itself can begin a healing process because you're creating a really non-judgmental, supportive, caring space for them, which my guess is they've had very little of that in the, in the recent past or maybe in the, in the totality of their past. Yeah, I, I think that that actually is the treatment, really. It is definitely the, I mean, the first part is that, you know, you have to create enough safety to be able to make that relationship. But yeah, when you explain the adaptive features of addiction and the, the ways in which good people can hurt, you know, do bad things, it really creates what I call these moments of liberation. And you can see the shift in people's bodies. They physically shift down into the ventral state where they feel safer and more connected to their own body that is no longer a devil in the corner doing push-ups or you know these awful metaphors that we have for addiction that scare people and make them feel as though they'll they're never they can never settle in the body and trust <laughs> that that they won't just always be addicted before you go down the path of walking through some of the practices that could be really helpful for helping people switch out of you know, either the either the sympathetic activated state or the shutdown state or the mixed state as you talked mm -hmm. about. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, cause you've talked about in this case, women suffering from incest. So that's how we started the conversation. You also mentioned yeah. combat veterans with PTS as examples, yeah. but I would, I would imagine that there's a lot of people out there who don't have 
that degree in quotes of trauma mm-hmm. because of our culture you know they're they're sympathetically activated almost all the time with no you know downtime um, and they, they might also be dealing with some of the same challenges that we've discussed without having to have you know the intense trauma of yes. those groups that we just discussed yes yeah, so that, that i totally agree with that in fact well i mean you know Bruce Alexander's work where he talks about dislocation theory that our whole culture is alienated. Um, And now Gabor Mate's work is coming out around, you know, this the toxic culture in which we live and create. And he's been talking about that for a long time. So, and then we've got, you know, um, for example, uh, the ways in which um, kids are exposed to the internet these days and the like, look at the, the market for pornography. Lots of people who never had horrible trauma experiences growing up, and we need to stop blaming parents and particularly blaming mothers and looking at systemic forms of oppression. And also just, you know, that's huge, right? And, and also ways in which uh, kids are constantly being challenged by how much screen time they have and what they're getting up to on the screen. Uh, the pornography industry is, I think, the biggest industry in the world. And so, yeah, I, I think we're, we, we, we are living in cultures that don't help us to connect and to ground and to feel safe. And that no longer do we just look at family dynamics. You know, I, I, you, I think it'd be of value to kind of go down that path before we talk about practices. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about the five phases of, of oppression. Of oppression, yeah. Or the cultural level, as opposed to yes. playing the mother, the father, or the family dynamic. Can you speak a little bit of, of those, and then we can jump into the practices? Sure. Well, you know, if you are living as a marginalized person in, in our culture, you're going to have a double whammy or a triple whammy in terms of uh, not having experienced in your body um, the sense of being, uh, of belonging, of respect, of dignity. I mean, all of these challenges come up with misogyny, with racism, with gender violence. I mean, it's you're seeing it more and more and more now in our culture and that, that we're dealing with these things, which I think on, on some level is wonderful because it has to be dealt with. Um, you're seeing it in terms of how, you know, it's still, it's still white privileged people that are getting access to the vaccines. Um, we're not going to get out of this. This is a polyvagal lesson. We are not going to get out of this mess we're in until all of us are safe enough, which means we have to examine those systems of oppression uh, because they're so systemic and so problematic. Agree. You know, you mentioned Dr. Gabor Monte, and I just yeah. want to, you'll be joining him actually, uh, the uh, US Association for Body Psychology Forum, Integrating Addiction and Trauma Treatment. You'll be joining him, Stephen Porges, yourself, and a few others. Yeah. February 21st. Yes, I'm so excited about that. We're looking at, you know, how to really um, uh, appreciate addiction treatment through embodied practices. And that's a good segue. Talk to us a little about embodied (laughs) practices. Well, this is where, you know, um, for me and, and the, the, 
the thing about my model, the felt sense polyvagal model, is that it's really very generic. You can use, you can bring in any kind of psychotherapy uh, and apply it because it's basically a model that, that rests on two body processes. So I'm saying in order to work with addictions, you have to understand the autonomic nervous system and the role that they play in the nervous system. And then we have to be able to uh, um, really attend to these two in particular powerful processes in the body. So um, this would be like Steve Porges uh, concept of neuroception, the ways in which we notice where our nervous system is, what state am I in right now? So for me right now, the state that I'm in is what I'm calling fired up. It's, it's one of the six Fs in my simple kind of, it's a graphic model. So it's a way of working visually with clients and in fired up, it's a blending of grounded and also some sympathetic. So to be here with you and we're, you know, live, people are going to listen to it. So I've got some adrenaline pumping and it's exciting. At the same time, I got my feet on the floor and I think I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and so, you know, there's that sense of not going up into that flight fight place, but staying grounded and also passionate about, about the work. Um, and where were we? What did you ask me? Just some of the practices. Oh, the practices. Yeah. So that's neuroception. The other process that is so important that we're working more and more on in somatic uh, practices, or maybe just articulating more, is around this process of introception, where we're mindful of what's happening emotionally, experientially, sensually, physically in the body. So it's not just senses, it's how the body makes meaning out of an experience, the subjective experience that I'm having here with you or you're having with me. And so I looked, I was trying to find, well, how am I going to help these women? Because um, the ways that we had at that time were, were either too extreme in terms of like bioenergetics where they were getting re-traumatized. Um, they weren't gentle enough and titrated enough or they were very sort of uh, psychoanalytic and, and um, pathologizing. And there was definitely some CBT in there too, but at that time, again, it wasn't in any way related or integrated into the body. And still that's, a, that's an edge, a field there. So um, I found Jenlin's felt sense work, focusing practice work. I found the little book and I read it and I met uh, Mary Armstrong, who was a trainer in Toronto. And I started uh, training with her and realized the power of this very simple six-step process that Jenlin created as a way into quieting and listening to the body. And then listening to the shifts that happen in the body that I saw in these women in the nervous system. So I put those two things together. And that's really the model that I use is integrating how to work with the felt sense of a, of a situation, the feelings that are in there, we go down into how do those feelings sit in your body. And usually people will close their eyes or soften their gaze. 
and they start to slowly go down into this kind of implicit physical world. And the body gives us all kinds of information about how we're feeling. If we pause, and as Jenlin would say, if we give it what it needs to be able to be heard. And so when we do that and everything slows down, tightness, you know, we feel constriction. If we're up in that sympathetic place, we may feel a kind of numbing or a deadening a floppy folding feeling if we're in a more dissociated dorsal place and we teach people how to identify what's happening in your body. Where are you in your nervous system and what does your body need to be able to really help you with the material, the experiencing that you're struggling with. And it's very powerful work and goes along beautifully with somatic experiencing and all kinds of other IFS, all kinds of other ways of working with parts and, and with trauma. But, you know, the important thing I think is that we do have a kind of embodied framework um, to, to kind of understand conceptually as well what it is that we're doing somatically. And so that's what I've put together in what I call the embodied assessment and treatment tool. Do you find when you work with individual clients that they are, they can easily name a feeling, but have a tough time getting into the physical body as a subjective self sense with the feeling where it shows up and how it expresses itself? Yeah, I, I find that what I talk about are sort of four avenues into the felt sense, into the body. So there's there's uh, thoughts, which is a, a, a very common one in our culture, right? We talk a lot about thinking and thoughts, and we really value cognition. Um, and then there's feelings, and there's physical sensations in the body. And then there's also memories, right? Bodies carry memories. And so you look for... Um, where, where does a person start? Are they, are they really kind of oriented to cognition? So you meet them there, you meet them where they are and then help them to start to notice slowly over time. Cause particularly with addiction, right? People don't want to connect to the body cause it doesn't feel safe. So this is a very, it's a slow process of what I call kind of coaxing your clients back to life. And you do that through the relationship, through love and care and kindness and clear boundaries and, and listening without judgment and teaching, a lot of teaching in polyvagal theory too, teaching about the nervous system, teaching people how you know, to connect back to. And so looking for things that give you a little opening, like a person might come in and they're they're very um, disconnected from feeling, for example, uh, but they can feel something. You'll ask them, well, you know, I noticed that you kind of cleared your throat there, or I noticed that you, you're, you're kind of rubbing your neck there. Um, of course, you don't do that awkwardly. You have to make sure that you've got a connection, right? That the client knows that you like them and that you're very respectfully honoring their dignity and helping them to go a little deeper. So very gently just saying, well, what, 
what, what's going on with your shoulder there? You know, oh yeah, it's sore. It's, oh, when did you first notice that? Oh, I don't know. And then we start into, well, what's been going on for the last week or two? And then you start to connect it with an experience. And then you sort of say, well, would it be okay to just, you know, just really notice more about what's happening in your shoulder? And of course, if it's not, you back up. But sometimes people are, they want to, they don't know how, and they're scared to do it to connect more with themselves alone, of course. But if you go with them, they might say, well, you know, it's really, it's really tight. And then you you might sort of just start to track it. Well, does it go up, you know, into your neck? Um, Yeah, it does. And it goes right up in back of my ear and, you know, and then just really exploring the quality of it right and bringing the body in to the room into the healing journey ever so gently and then sometimes too it'll be like um, people will have a lot of feeling and they'll know what the feeling even is but they won't have any sensation in the body and that's where you see this way these ways in which bodies can dissociate different aspects of experience right and i would imagine different aspects of the body can itself yeah. dissociate yeah exactly yeah and so you just keep normalizing it well yeah that's what bodies do just keep saying that that's that's how bodies respond to help you because how would you ever have survived if you couldn't have numbed it really i mean that really is the basic question right yeah. how could people survive incest if they had to stay present, you can't. So isn't it absolutely remarkable? And in some ways, completely understandable that bodies are designed to help us when we don't have any other choice. You know, one of the many things I love about your model is it integrates first and second person. Yes. Because I'm thinking, listen to you talk, I'm like, okay, great. Because you're helping someone to tap back into and have a relationship and live within their own body yeah you know first person they're kind of deepening their own self-sense but you know interpersonally or second person is so yeah. important because it's the real it's you know i've heard you say a couple times already it's you know really the relationship yeah for relations great yes and then it's also you know the interpersonal connections which creates the safety and then can allow the individual more likely the capacity to learn to self-regulate yeah because you know as jendlin said interaction is first we are born in interaction we live in interaction and so it's hard to really separate out where i stop and you begin <laughs> even on even on the internet um so we are, we are in this interaction. We're designed to co-regulate. When I was reading Jandlin and then reading Porges, I was thinking, wow, there's so much here that really relates to each other. And I've, I've often had the fantasy that I could have introduced them. But, um, you know, I've talked with Steve quite a bit about Jandlin and he really appreciates the, the, the power of the felt sense. And uh, in fact, recently described how the best way of really uh, understanding safety um, is, is through understanding what that felt sense of safety feels like in the body. 
know that there's a quote in your book. It's uh, to be free and still belong. And I think it's really important because you talk about individual autonomy, but in the context of belonging socially. Yeah, we all need, that's a primary need, right? Is to belong. It's so primary. It's so important. Wow. So where can people learn more about your work and obviously get your book and perhaps uh, find you and some of your trainings that you got coming up? Well, you can go to my website, janwinhall.com. And pretty well, everything is listed there. I have a course on the Polyvagal Institute website. And that's sort of a quite a detailed course on my book. And then I'm doing lots of different trainings right now, which is wonderful. And I have groups in my own community at focusingonboredom.com. And we have a wonderful uh, trauma and addiction uh, group on the Polyvagal Institute website that I'm um, uh, facilitating. Just recently actually did an interview with Steve Porges and ask me anything with our group. Our group is now up to like, I don't know, 880 people or something signed up to this group. Can you imagine? I mean, we're having a party when it reaches a thousand, honestly. Um, And yeah, you can just see, right? There's so much interest in working with trauma and addiction somatically. And to look at different ways and different generic ways that we can also just integrate and bring together. Cause there's really no one way, right? And being different language, different uh, teachers appeal to different people. And I think so much of the training is about, you know, finding what makes sense to you in the training but also where you feel you belong. I love that. So you know, you're not a Johnny one note. <laughs> no, not yeah. at all. And Jen Lynn would say that he'd say, eh, you know, just bring the felt sense into everything. As soon as you bring the body into anything, it's better. So, you know, it's not about like this way or that way. It's, it's an integrated way of really understanding and integrated top down, bottom up too. Right. Cause that's how bodies are designed. We have a right hemisphere and a left hemisphere and we need to talk to each other. Right on. So let me encourage people to check out Jan's new book, Treating Trauma and Addiction with the Felt Sense Polyvagal Model, a bottom-most approach. And I'll make sure to include links in the show notes for your website and the various trainings that you offer, as well as one that I mentioned that's coming up soon with uh, Gabe Ormonte and Stephen Porges. Uh, Jan, thank you so much for joining us on the Emergent Human Podcast. Thank you, Michael. That was fun. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>